This morning is going very smoothly, by the way. Oh my goodness. So for about the last year to two years, I've been uh, praying and studying and trying to find a way to make all of these things that should be so familiar to us, but aren't. These foreign ideas, all these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, the overall story and arc of the entire scripture uh, narrative, how do we make this stuff simple and clear, and I've been wrestling over it with, with uh, Pastor Zach and Pastor Larry, and then about two weeks ago, a friend of mine showed me this video, and I was like, are you kidding me? This has been here for like two years. I've been searching for something, you know, to, to make this simple and, and uh, uh, approachable, and apparently it's been here, and I just didn't know about it. I mean, like, that is so frustrating, but what basically just happened there is you just saw in about three minutes what's going to take me 35 minutes to explain, and tons of notes, you're going to get bored and fall asleep, and it told you with pictures. Yeah? Goodness gracious, you guys are hard to impress. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We just make room and time in our hearts and our minds to receive your word. We ask that we wouldn't just be able to, uh, to grab a hold of this stuff with our minds, but that, that your spirit, the spirit of God, would bring revelation and understanding that this would be so real that it would grip us and change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone said it? All right. Now, how you guys feeling today? Are you guys awake? We got a long way to go and not a lot long. I don't know if I'm awake. Worship was so good today. Sometimes I get tired just worshiping, you know, it's goodness gracious. All right, if you guys were not here last week, we're talking about the gospel. When we're talking about gospel, we're talking about this, this Greek word, okay, euangelion, which means good news. And what's happened here with this whole thing is that the gospel is, is, is the most central understanding, the key to unlocking all of Christianity, all of the scriptures, the entire story of history as it is, is all locked into this, this, this word, good news. Now, what the gospel has been often uh, referred to in modern history is, you know, basically the way to salvation. And what happens here with most of the teachings of the gospels, it's very similar to paint, to, to colors, if you would. You have three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, right? Anyone who knows that? Red, yellow, and blue? Okay. In kindergarten, you would take those colors and just start putting them on the paper and just all that, right? And it would turn green, it would turn purple, it would turn all these different colors depending on which color you put in there. And so with most of the teachings we've heard on the gospel, it's not that it hasn't been the gospel, it's just that it's had too much of one color and not enough of the other colors. And so there are specific components of what the gospel is, and it's crucial that we get enough of each color to get the accurate picture of what God was doing. And so what happens for us is as we go through the scriptures, we're going to begin to find out what components make up the gospel 
And what happens when we actually put them on the page the right way? What do we see? Who is God and what is God doing in the earth and with humanity? And these are the things that are answered whenever we jump into this stuff. And so what's going on here, if, if you guys look, uh, we have some notes kind of help you guys. What we learned about news is that to understand news, we have to understand the context, the recipient, and the content are what determine the reception of news. Uh, an example of this basically is, okay, if I said, the hogs lost last night, bad news to us, right? Okay, the context, we all live in Arkansas, most of us in the room are fans of the Razorbacks, okay? Most of us are very disappointed in the Razorbacks, okay? And of course, the recipient is us, we're the ones hearing the news, and of course, the content is that they lost. But, if you were to say the same thing to someone from South Carolina, hey, the hogs lost, it means something completely different to them. Why? Who knows the context? Because they played each other yesterday in basketball. I know you guys knew this stuff. I mean, three or four guys at least knew that, and you guys are just going to leave me out to dry. Okay. Because you knew the context, what's going on around it, now you understand that it's good news to some people, bad news to other people. And so with the gospel, we have to understand what's, what was going on leading up to this announcement. What was the background story? And why are people reacting differently to it? Why are the Jews angry about this? Why are the priests trying to stop this? Why is Caesar trying to stop this news from spreading? And then why are there people who are embracing it so much that they're willing to die for this news? And so we have to understand these certain components so that we understand what the gospel is. So the context of the gospel is basically the video we just showed. Basically, everything that leads up to the good news of what God was doing in Jesus starts all the way in creation, starts all the way in the Garden of Eden. So what we see here, the context of the gospel is, starts in the garden, moves on to the covenant he makes with Abraham, moves on to King David, to the exile, to the prophecies, and then, of course, to the background where the gospel is released, which is the time where the Roman Empire is controlling Israel. All of this builds up to affect the way that this news is understood. The reason that we don't typically understand the news the same way that they did, the reason most of us have been taught a gospel that is part of the gospel but isn't the whole gospel, is because we don't understand the news the way that they understood the news. So we laid out the context. And so the next thing we have to figure out is the recipient. Who was receiving this, this news? And we understand that the ones who were receiving the news is the first century Jews and even the Roman Empire. I know there's a lot of background. It'll all make sense once we keep rolling. Now, what's the content? What is the news? What's being said? Now, uh, the most succinct summary of what the gospel is, what the actual good news is, is found in Acts 2, verse 36. This is the first gospel sermon that we see in the scriptures. It's by the Apostle Peter. And basically, they've been hiding out this entire time since Jesus has died. They're not really sure what's going to happen. They've been spending time kind of discussing and arguing over what Jesus meant by different things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes back, and he spends 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God, explaining to them what he was doing. And then he leaves again, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. All of a sudden, they make a, a scene, if you would. So people start gathering, going, what is going on here? And the first chance that the disciples get to explain what God did through Jesus, the gospel, is found in Acts 2, verse 36. And he says, and you are right to believe that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. This is the summary of what God was doing through Jesus, what the good news is. 
And what's hidden in this very simple phrase is three activities God was up to. The first thing is hidden in Jesus' own name. His name means that Yahweh is salvation. Salvation is in Yahweh. And so it's saying that the way that God was going to redeem his people was through himself. He was going to be the one to take the bite of the snake. You've seen that from the video? I love that. Secondly, it's, we see it in his title of Lord, meaning the same God who's going to take sin upon himself to end sin is also the one who's actually the king, not just of Israel, but of the Gentiles and of all of creation. He's going to reign not only Israel, but over everyone. And then his third title of Messiah shows that this is the same God, the God of the Jews, who's going to fulfill all the promises that were promised through the prophets of what the Messiah would do. The next week, we're going to focus on his role as king, and the week after that, his role as savior. But this week, I want to unpack what does it mean, why is it good news that Jesus is the Messiah? Now, what's going to happen to all of us after we go through this series, you guys will never be able to read the Bible the same. You will never be able to see a song or a hymn on the screen and not pick out, oh, so that's why his name is King and that's why we call him Messiah and that's why he's Jesus and that's why he was ransomed and that's why we're free. It's all going to pop to you once you see this. And most of all of this intricate work of what God was doing in Jesus is hidden in the title Messiah. So as we talk about the term Messiah, before we dive into it, I just want to say this. I always used to get kind of frustrated with these titles that would pop up in the scriptures. If, if, you, if you guys are in the Old Testament, how many times in the Old Testament do you guys see the title Lord pop up? So it would be like God and Lord. And, and so my Lord said to my Lord, and you're like, my Lord said to my Lord, what are they talking about, right? Okay. And then in the New Testament, you guys be reading, and all of a sudden, and, and it would say, Jesus, Lord, Messiah. And then, and then the Apostle Paul, in all of his letters, he's always referring to him as king, as Lord, and he's always throwing in this other title, Messiah. I used to get so frustrated because I would see these titles and be like, I know they mean something, but what do these things mean? And I used to think that the word Messiah was just another way of saying Savior. He's the one who, who's going to come free us from sin. But there's a lot more to this. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. So you guys are turning there. I want you guys to pray for me this week. I've been invited to go speak at a youth group in Fort Smith. And I, <laughs> and I told the youth pastor, I said, I am more nervous about this. I've been about anything else I've done. Okay, it's been, it's been uh, my goodness, what is it? Maybe uh, six years or five years since, since I was a youth pastor. Your cool factor wears off in about three months. <laughs> yeah, right, Jason? Yeah. It, I mean, it just wears off like that. I mean, I'm so nervous that these kids are going to chew me up, spit me out. I mean, I'm, I'm terrified that I'm old and I'm lame and they're just going to make fun of me when I leave. And If I'm lucky, they won't make fun of me while I'm there, you know, which is even worse. But Oh, thank you. So be praying for me with all that kind of stuff, you know. I'm, ugh. Now, we're going to focus on the Gospel of Luke. Here's why. Now, Luke... Is, the, is also the writer of the book of Acts. Luke is the only gospel writer, the only one who writes a gospel, who spent lots of time with Peter and with Paul, okay? 
And so what's crucial here is that sometimes it's, it's a little bit easy for us to think that the Apostle Paul is teaching a different gospel. With Paul, he talks a lot about justification through faith. He talks a lot about personal salvation. And so some pastors and theologians have thought, well, Jesus talks about kingdom and Paul talks about salvation. Are these the same thing? And with Luke, what I love about Luke is Luke was able to spend time with the Jews whenever they were receiving the gospel and he was able to be around them as they were you know, trying to unpack how Jesus is the Messiah but he was also spending time with Paul as Paul was unpacking his role as savior and his role as king and so the gospel of Luke emphasizes all three of the roles of Jesus savior, lord, and messiah so that's why we're going to focus a little bit on this gospel and so what we see here in Luke chapter 9 we see that Jesus is in prayer and he's alone in private with his disciples. His ministry um, has already begun, and now he's just starting to get some pressure from the outside. Okay? The teachers of the law are on to him. They're starting, they're starting to connect the dots. He would always say things. He was always teaching about the kingdom of God, about the fulfillment of the Messiah prophecies, but he would always sneak in these small sayings to kind of flirt with the idea that he was the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And so now that he's let that cat out of the bag just a little bit, people are starting to get frustrated. They're starting to question. Even John the Baptist himself is now confused. He's saying, well, the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to set all the captives free. But I'm in prison, <laughs> so are you the Messiah? And, of course, Jesus responds by saying, you go tell him that I'm setting captives free. <laughs> and he goes, that didn't help me at all because <laughs> he's still in prison. So, I mean... John the Baptist himself and, you know, all the crowds and all the, the, uh, the Pharisees, they're all trying to figure out who is Jesus and what he's doing. And so here's the context for the conversation we're about to see. Luke 9, verse uh, 19, oh, uh, 18. He says, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now, pause right there. We just watched the video, and you guys were able to see why these ideas were crucial to the Jews. Because he's teaching that the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of the Messiah was entering into the world in that moment. And so either this human being, this Jesus, either has to be one of the prophets who prophesied that it was going to come, or he himself is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to do this. And so these answers, when they say John the Baptist or Elijah, again, they're trying to figure out which one in this process of leading up to the kingdom of the Messiah is he. And so it goes on, he says, but, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And so Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Now, um, depending on your translation, your translation might say Christ, okay? Now, the word Messiah is Hebrew. How's it pronounced? Uh, Mashiach. Nice? Sounds like Klingon, right? Mashiach, okay? <laughs> and it, what that word means, it means anointed. It means smeared. It's the idea of, of, of um, having special oil that you would smear on a shield or on a home or on a, you know, some kind of an object. But this term, uh, it became a, a, uh, a reference to a human, a person whenever the prophets began to prophesy about the anointed one, the chosen one of God, who would have the smear, he would have the sign of the favor and the hand of God. He would carry the authority of God to do God's will. 
And so the word Christ comes from Christo. It's, it's, it's the English word from the Greek understanding of this word. And so basically if it says Christ, it's the same thing as Messiah. Okay, you can kind of trade those out. And so, and, and so Peter says, you are the Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to, to tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Now understand, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. The Son of Man was one of the terms that was used for the suffering servant of God that would come to restore all things. And, and so he says to them, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Pause right there. Understand they do not know what he's talking about when he talks about the cross. You have a very different understanding of cross than he does. The early church didn't even start using the symbol cross for the church for a few hundred years. This idea that the cross is a good thing is foreign to them. What they understand the cross to be is the symbol of the Roman Empire. With our context that we broke down, the last line we had was the, the final layer of context to understand the story was the Roman Empire. And what they would do is they would crucify all of the, the rebel leaders or protesters. What they would do is they would, they would have these crosses lining up the roads of the Roman Empire. So as you're walking from one city to the next, you would be reminded every step of the way of the price of trying to free yourself from the rule and, and the reign of Caesar. And so he's saying, hey, so what you're going to have to do to follow me, because I am the Messiah, you're going to have to put yourself on a cross. They had no clue what he was talking about, okay? And I, I want to throw that in there just because it's important for us to kind of be kind of shaken up a little bit. Understand that there's so much more going on here than what we normally see. Now, if you guys want to fast forward down to verse 28, here's what happens. It says, so about eight days later, after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up on a mountainside to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Understand, pause there, this is a reference, this is showing his disciples a picture that they're familiar with, a picture of Moses. This is a picture of the man Moses who, of what took place to his physical body when he entered into the tent of meeting with God. Now, this is crucial, okay? Because the tent of meeting with God, the idea that God would be with man is so foreign to them. They have gone for over 500 years without seeing the presence of God. He hasn't shown up in lightning. He hasn't shown up in smoke or thunder. He hasn't shown up in any form to them in over 500 years. And so to his disciples, this is the first sign that God truly is returning to be with them. And so as they see this, two men appear, Moses and Elijah, in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his, and his companions were very sleepy, but they became fully awake. I'm sure they did. They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Um, so as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here, Lord. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And of course, there in parentheses, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> I love that. Still completely in the dark about what God was doing. Now, the reason that this is our primary text for this morning, this is Luke 
affirming and trying to staple into the mind of us, his readers, Jesus is the Messiah. Because what had just happened, what we just read, was where Jesus, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And when the answer comes out, Messiah, there is still doubt there. There's still question there. And so God was so clear to cement Jesus' role as Messiah that eight days later he makes the same person, Peter, witness this transfiguration where he has it sealed in his heart, this is the one. Now this is crucial for us. Here's why. Most of us, we understand the gospel to be this. We were sinners. Jesus died for our sins so that whenever we die, we go to heaven, not hell. Right? Okay. What about this passage confirms anything to do with that? The transfiguration has nothing to do with the focus on his role as Savior. It's primarily cementing one role, his role as Messiah. And so if God would go to such lengths to to clearly identify Jesus as Messiah, surely we need to understand what that meant. Agreed? So let's find out what that meant. Let's have some fun. So here we go. So who's the Messiah? Okay, so like who is this guy? What's he supposed to do, all right? What, you know, what are we supposed to understand about this guy? So we understand the Hebrew word for it. But this Messiah was prophesied that he was going to be kind of a, a king and a priest. Because to that point in history, God had always sent either prophets, priests, or kings, or judges. Basically two different forms of the expression of the power and heart of God. And yet there's going to be one man in the Messiah who is going to basically facilitate all of the roles needed for the power and the authority of God, the reign of God, to be executed. He was going to be a priest and a king. And so the next question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, so what was the Messiah coming to do? If, if God was so focused on making sure that we knew he was Messiah, why is it even important? Here's some things that the Messiah was going to do. Here's the first one. Now, we don't have time to go through all the scriptures. I'll save you that. But if you had time to take down notes, I encourage you to do so. Here's the first thing that he would do. The first thing that the Messiah would do was he would defeat the serpent and its bite through sacrifice. Meaning, the bite of the serpent is death. Meaning, the consequences of sin is what? Death. The ultimate result of rebellion towards God is death. And so what this Messiah was going to do is he's going to take on the bite of the serpent, the, the, the repercussions of sin upon himself. And of course, if you guys see, we have the, the references there. If you guys want to go ahead and spend time on your own looking those up. The next thing he would do, he would restore man, he would restore the relationship of man and the fellowship of man back to God. Basically, he would be the one who would, who would restore the Garden of Eden and the relationship, the covenant relationship that man had. He would return the Jews to Israel. Now, this is a really complex picture, but all throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies, there's a picture of God returning Israel back to their promised land. And what we need to understand is that all of history leading up to Jesus were these... Um, it's almost like wayfinding signs. It's almost like whenever you're trying to find your way to the nursery, right? We've got the signs that, hey, nursery's this way. Nursery's this way. It takes you all the way around, right? Slightly annoying, or is it helpful? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. Okay. And so the whole point is there's these signs all the way around just kind of show, okay, I'm going to go this way, and then you get there. Okay, we made it. 
All of the Old Testament, the prophecies, and King David, and Israel, and, and, and Abraham, these are all signs pointing to the way God was going to ultimately bring them back to the garden. It's this giant U-turn. And so what happens is they're in the garden, they're with God, and then because of this rebellion, this, this choice they make, they are kicked out. But God had this plan to bring them all the way Sadly, they had no clue what was going on. At the time, we don't either, right? That's okay. <laughs> we share that in common with them. And so, and so what we see here is even these prophecies about, about how God would, would restore Israel back to their, their promised land. Their promised land was a picture of the Garden of Eden. And so that's why it was important. So, and so in all these prophecies, it's not just that God would bring them back to a physical land. It's that God would bring his people back to himself. That is the ultimate fulfillment that the Messiah was going to do. That's one of the primary reasons that the Jews to this day do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Because he did not return his people to his land. Because what they were missing was that he was returning all of his people to himself. And that, and that the promised land that he was going to restore was not just Israel, it was not just the garden, it was the entire creation. He was going to lead all of us on this path where he was going to make all things right and bring it all the way back to where he wanted us to be in the first place. To where this very planet, this creation, all that exists would become this garden, this place of, of true existence and relation and connection and spending our lives in communion and covenant with him. Are you seeing how big this story is? It is so much bigger than just you going to heaven because really heaven comes here anyway. Which by the way, just kind of a side note promo. The Sunday after Easter, we're talking about heaven. So you better not miss it, okay? It's a natural place to go after you talk about the resurrection. Straight to heaven. All right. Fun yet? I'm having fun. I'm having fun. Okay, here's the next thing he would do. He would purify the worship in the temple, and what he would do is he would signal the return of God's presence. And I think we see this in Malachi, I think is where we see this especially. This idea that when Jesus would come, he was going to, to make all, things, all expressions, all relationship with God, he would restore it to the way it was supposed to be. And once, these, once this relationship, once this communion was made right, the presence of God would come back. And and so what you always saw in the Old Testament was the presence of God being with the people. This cloud, this smoke that was always behind this curtain, the curtain of the presence. What you would always see is it was a sign that God was with them. He, he was able to be met. But what they missed in Jesus was that God chose a new tabernacle. He chose the body of Jesus. And so he, he, he returned. God, the presence of, of God, the, the, uh, the kabod itself, Return to his people in Jesus. Jesus walks up to the temple with his disciples, and they're sitting there talking about the temple, and they're going, Yeah, they're talking, about, Oh no, you know, the prophecy says, you know, this temple's going to be destroyed. And he's like, Yeah. And then in three days it'll rise again. Me. Whew. Just like that. And this Messiah was signaling the return of God to his people. The next thing he would do, which is very important for us, by the way, is he would open the temple for all the world to worship. Meaning, the reign of the Messiah, when the Messiah was in control, God was not only able to be accessed by his people, but all people would be able to access the temple. All people would be able to come into this relationship with Yahweh. Here's the next thing he would do. 
in, in Daniel 9, we see that the Messiah is going to end sin. Meaning the very existence, the very possibility of this thing that could separate us or cause harm to us or bring death to us will cease to exist in the reign of the Messiah. He will come into control and he will have such authority that he will be able to not only forgive us of our sins, but to remove sin altogether. Are you seeing the difference there? The Messiah is not just this lamb who's slain. He's also this lion who's able to conquer and have authority over what comes in and what goes out. He doesn't only forgive us our sins, he removes sin altogether. That's a big one too. He would lead Israel out of captivity and into God's new reign. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. And then he would reign eternally. And he would facilitate a kingdom of shalom and of jubilee. These, these Hebrew words don't mean a whole lot to most of us. And, you know, it, it's mostly new to me as well as far as really seeing value in it. But this, this idea of shalom, it wasn't just peace. It wasn't just calm. It's this idea of everything that's missing being fulfilled. Everything that's missing from our lives, our existence, our hearts, our everything that's not fully whole, everything that's not the way it's supposed to be is going to be made the way it's supposed to be. And then the idea of jubilee is that this would be a kingdom where there is never lack. There's never fighting or, or strife or division. All needs are met. All relationships are restored. All offenses are forgiven. All people, all things, anything and everything that could be broken or stolen or lost would be returned to us under the reign of the Messiah. If you've lost a loved one, if you've, if you've lost a dream, if you lost an infant or a child, whatever you lost, if you lost innocence, if you lost hope, if you lost whatever it is that you could lose in the reign of the Messiah, it's brought back to you. It returns to you. Aren't you glad that he wasn't just a savior, he's also the Messiah? Are you seeing how the gospel is very simple? The good news is Jesus. <laughs> but it's also the good news that Jesus is Messiah, and he's king, and he's savior. And as we open this up, you will never be able to see the scriptures the same way again. Everywhere you look, you will see this, this trumpeting sound of, look what God is doing in Jesus. Because the hardest thing for us is that most of the scriptures, because we see the gospel, because we see the scriptures in this lens that says, well, all he cared about is that when I die, I go to heaven. So it's very hard for us to see anything where God is at work now. It's hard to see anything where he wants anything from me now. It's hard to understand how, he, how it's more than just Sunday. It's more than just tithing. It's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just having Jesus in my heart. When you understand what the Messiah was coming to do, you understand you are giving an invitation to enter into a new world. And this invitation is not one that happens at death. This invitation is one that happens now. Jesus came proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven is here. And what happens is you see this king walking around and everywhere this Messiah goes, he makes his kingdom manifest. Because in the kingdom, it's all about jubilee. There's nothing lost. So he walks up to this person who has no hearing. Here's your hearing. He walks up to this woman whose son just died. Here's your son back. 
There's no lack. His disciples say, hey, so what's going to happen? We don't have any money. Hey, just go fishing. Happens to be thousands of dollars in the fish's mouth because that makes tons of sense. Right? Come on. And so everywhere he goes, his kingdom is showing up. And this is, this is powerful, but it's also threatening to Simon. We'll unpack more of that next week. So basically, he's, he's going to come accomplish all these different things. But there are two primary ways that he accomplishes these things. The first one is this. The first way that, that the Messiah is going to initiate these things onto the earth is he's going to die for our sins, the sins of the people. In essence, he's going to accept the bite of the serpent in our stead, in our place. Secondly, what the Messiah is going to do, he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom of God. What this means is he's going to reestablish the garden. He's going to reestablish our place in the garden and reestablish God's place in the garden. We'll unpack more of this next week as well. It's really hard for me to teach these things without like, telling too much about next week and the week after. Now, let's kind of fast forward a little bit here. Let's talk about how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah. I had to really condense this. As far as all of the, the Old Testament proofs as to why Jesus is the Messiah, I mean, it could be pages and pages. There's so many, there are dozens of prophecies that Jesus fulfills in, in his ministry and his life. But here's some of the highlights. Here, here's the first way that we're able to confirm and see Jesus is this person who's going to do these things. We see that he comes in the line of Abraham, Moses, Israel, and David. Second thing is we see that he's born of a virgin, something that the prophet um, Isaiah was very clear about. We go on next, we, we talk about Jesus symbolically calls his 12 disciples. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had 12? Didn't have 14, 9, 5 disciples? Yeah? Why did you pick 12? That's an odd number, Jesus. Okay. And so what's going on here is he was symbolically choosing 12 disciples to be a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the reason this is important, understand he didn't choose 11, which would make him part of Israel. He chose 12, making him the leader of Israel. Does that make sense? Do you see a little bit? And so the reason he chose 12 was to clearly identify he was the one who was going to lead Israel out. Again, he was the Messiah. The next point here, we see that Jesus himself cleanses the temple. We, we saw in Malachi this idea that, that the, the Messiah was going to cleanse the temple. And so Jesus walks in the temple with his whip and he starts to holler and all these different things. And he, he, he quotes the Psalms and says, you know, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. And everyone around him is so confused. But a few of the people, especially Luke, remembered that he was quoting King David. And he was, again, fulfilling more of the roles of what the Messiah would do. And it wasn't that he was cleansing the physical temple. He was going to cleanse all of creation. When he cleansed the temple, it was a picture not of what he was doing in that physical building, because he even taught his disciples he was the temple. He was cleansing this building in a picture of what he was going to do in the world. Do you see that? The video ended with that picture of the earth with the snake wrapped around it. And then all of a sudden that snake just like disappears. That is the picture of what he's doing in the temple. When he's got the whip and he's moving all the stuff out. He's showing everything that is, has become an obstacle. And this separation from God is going to be moved out when I'm in control. And I'm in control right now. How we doing? I think I'm getting tired, huh? I think I'm ready to go home. Here we go. 
Fifth point, Jesus, he exercises authority and power over Satan. We see this all throughout the Gospels. Again, he, he, he proclaims the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he proves it. Because the kingdom is near, because God is near, because Yahweh is in your face, I'm going to take control over anything that is of Satan. And he does this throughout his entire reign. And what's very interesting about this is the moment that Rome begins to catch this idea that he's establishing kingdom, they start to realize uh, we war with kingdoms. We are the kingdom in control. And if he's coming to establish a new reign, this is not something that we're okay with, which creates the reason that Rome had to try to fight the gospel. And when they could not fight the gospel, they'd find a way to hijack the gospel. Talk about that next week. Amen? Everyone's like, God, slow down. What are we doing? Trust me, it's, it's, it's not fair to any of us because, you know, I, I spend, I get hours of I'm getting to jump in this stuff and get all excited and, you know, make these notes. And I'm like, man, this is, this is way too much for Sunday morning, right? But I, there's no way we can stretch this over six years, which would probably take us, but to find someone else to teach it, he's better than I am. But maybe we can just play those videos and be a lot more effective than me being up here. It's more fun for me this way. Here's the sixth point we get. We see Jesus is uh, distinguished from the prophets and from the patriarchs at the transfiguration. We just saw that in Luke 9. Again, part of the way that God is confirming Jesus' role as Messiah is in this transfiguration where he puts Jesus at this place with the, the most revered, powerful men God has ever chosen, and yet they show up to serve him. They're showing up to aid him, to encourage him. And yet, and so it's showing that Jesus is even above the prophets, even above the original uh, receiver of the covenant of God. Verse 7, we see that, I mean, at point 7, we see that Jesus himself is the one who, who receives the bite of the serpent. We see this, of course, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul is expounding on this. But we see this picture where Jesus is enthroned on this cross, where he takes his seat on his throne in his new kingdom, which is a picture of the cross. And as he bleeds his last breath, he is fulfilling the very right that allows him to walk into authority because he fulfills the promise of God that he would take upon himself sin. He would take upon himself the bite of the serpent. Two more here. We see that Jesus himself defeats death, reversing the work of the first Adam. Again, if we don't see what God was doing throughout all of the scriptures, it doesn't make sense to us. And so the Apostle Paul talks about how the second Adam is the one who brings life because the first Adam brought death. And what Jesus is doing, he is able to take the bite on himself, but he doesn't stay dead. He rises again so that, so that this bite would never be able to affect anyone ever again. And here's the last point. We see that Jesus himself, he ushers in the eternal kingdom of God. And we see this even in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is very clear to point out that this is the man who's coming in the line of David to establish the eternal reign of God. Amen? So, we have to ask ourselves, that's all great and good. How does that apply to us, right? We want to act all spiritual, say, oh, that's, amen, thank you, Jesus. But, like, the real question we all got is, what's it have to do with me, right? So, okay, that was good news to the Jews that he was the Messiah, but how is his being Messiah good news to me? Let's go back and look at it. It's good news for us because we see that his, in fulfilling his role as Messiah, 
He forever takes the sting of death away from us. He forever will be the one who holds in his hand the consequences of our actions. And not only that, he's the one who will now hold in his hand the forces of evil that were the ones that were pushing us into sin itself. It's one thing for a man to lay down his life for us. It's another for him to remove our enemy altogether. He not only takes the bullet for us, he also takes the enemy out completely so there are never any more bullets ever again. He doesn't only take the snake by, he kills the snake. Okay, I was like, come on. He restores us. He restores us to God. There's this thing that we see in psychology where there is this constant need in man to be happy. There's this obsession in us. And, you know, secular psychologists and philosophers have been able to identify this in human history. It's, it's an odd situation where man is consumed with being happy. And the reason he's consumed with being happy is he is consumed with running away from the truth that something is missing in this life. There's something missing in this life. So if it takes us going from paycheck to paycheck or from football game to football game or from, you know, a new car to a new boat or from a new wife to a new lady on the side or whatever it is we need, we pursue this filling of this hole because there's something missing in us. And what's missing in us is we're not home. This is not our home. It's our home, but it's not right. Something's off with this world. Things aren't supposed to be this way. And there's something about God when he's absent, when he's not there, there's just an emptiness inside of us. And we can fill it with as much as we want, but no matter what we put in the hole, it only fits temporarily. It only keeps us distracted for a short time, and then we have to find something else to fill it with. And the Messiah puts back in our lives what's always been missing. And in reality, he doesn't put anything in us. He puts us back with God. And this is what has always been missing. What it means for us is that we get to return to the temple. And again, that's it's a very Old Testament picture. But what that means for us is there is no longer any separation between us and God. We have the ability to enter in to this divine relationship now. If there's one thing I've learned in the scriptures and in counseling is that humans are relational. The only ones of us who, who hide from relationship is because of wounds or hurts or pain. When someone is healthy and healed up and whole, they desire time around other people. There's something about just being around people. There's something about conversation, sharing experiences. And the, there's something about that same thing with God. And this Messiah is the one who's going to restore us to our place where we get to have that connection. There's nothing in life that's more dangerous to a human being than being isolated. Nothing. You know, in prisons they say that with the inmates who have to go to solitary confinement, they're very careful about how long they stay there because very quickly humans go from humans to animals quickly. When you separate us from what we're meant to be in, which is connection with other people, all of a sudden everything inside of us begins to die. He restores us to relationship. And of course, the other thing he does for us is... This Messiah is the one who's going to lead us in to a new place, 
a place of shalom. He's going to lead us into a place where everything is made whole again. Everything in us that's broken or wounded or things that we lost in the past, dreams that we let go of, hobbies, giftings, talents, passions, emotions, feelings, all things people, they will be made whole again. And then in that same place, when we allow the Messiah to lead us, he's going to take us to a place where we live in a perpetual place of jubilee, where there's never lack, there's never hurting or harm or losing. All loss under the Messiah is temporary. Did you get that? Under the kingdom of the Messiah. Say, if I'm living here in America and then I choose to, you know, take my flight to, you know, the kingdom of Messiah, when I land there, if I ever experience pain or loss or hurt or fear or death, it is temporary. Whereas if I experience that very thing anywhere else, it is permanent. But if I would allow the Messiah to let me into his kingdom, everything that I experience of pain and death and fear is only for a moment. And what will last forever is fulfillment and joy, hope and peace and love. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand and we'll close out this way. Last night when I was studying, I, I, always, I always want to go to people who disagree with me. So I, I listened to a two-hour debate by these theologians from this group who their entire question was about, okay, if all, this, if, if all this is true, if the gospel is really about the kingdom and about him being Messiah, then what about the gospel of John? Because he doesn't talk about any of that. And I was listening to him. I was like, man, there's something there. I was praying about it. And then I, I looked down on my notes. If you guys have your Bible, we're going to end on this verse. John 20, verse 30. John 20, verse 30. And it says, uh, Jesus did many other miracles and signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When you see that word believing, I want you to put something else in there. The Greek phrases that we take to get the word believing, it... it, really means to put your trust in to lean upon to kind of I trust this chair enough I'm going to lean on it I don't trust this enough to lean on it because yeah you guys have seen this over the weeks right it's, it's terrible if I did trust this enough you know, I, you know I'd be laying on it doing cartwheels and I don't know what else okay if, if I really believe that this thing is sturdy and it, it really is able to handle my weight and the things I care about and my welfare, my well-being and my future and my life, then I'll, I'll trust it. I'll put my weight on it. The way that we respond to the good news that Jesus is our Lord and Messiah is very simple. The first thing that takes place is we have to choose. Am I willing to give up my own sovereignty? Am I willing to give up my control as king of my life and submit my control to the king, to the Lord, 
Am I willing to give control of the rest of my life to this man? And secondly, in Romans 10 it says that you would confess that He is Lord and that you would believe that the Father raised Him from the dead. And what this is really saying is would you put your trust for the rest of your life in the reality that this man is the Messiah who was able to conquer death. Will you risk eternity on it? So this morning, if you guys just close your eyes, we're all human. I don't want to make it too stressful anymore.